Thanks for pressing play. In Hebrew, the name Moshe means salvation. That was Daniel Geffen's grandfather's name. Moshe was 13 years old when he was forced into his first Nazi concentration camp. Over the next five years, he'd be in 18 more. Moshe was tortured, shot, left for dead, and hung twice. And yet somehow he lived. After the war, he became a successful hotel entrepreneur in Switzerland. And what you're about to hear is a very real, raw dialogue about how Daniel Geffen's grandfather influenced everything about his life and drove him to become a podcasting entrepreneur. You'll also hear about how Daniel embraces faith, family, and philosophy to guide his life. And you might also find curious Daniel's thoughts on how to turn frustration into fascination. This is a deeply personal and powerful and, dare I say, fun conversation with a podcasting pioneer. And a couple things from me. If my voice sounds a little funny, I just want you to know my allergies are kicking in, and so that's what you might be picking up. It's uh, springtime here in beautiful uh, Northern California, and so that's part of what's going on. The other thing I wanted to say is one of the great joys about being a podcaster is uh, I've never had a job, if you want to call this a job, where people send me so much nice shit, whiskey, wine, presents, weird shit, <laughs> cool shit, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it, but if you are somebody who sent me something wonderful, um, if you send it through Amazon or some other service and you give me no way to know who you are, that is to say who the sender is, I can't thank you. So if you're any number of the people who've sent me wonderful gifts in the last uh, few months, I just want to thank you. And uh, anybody who decides to send me anything wonderful in the future, please find some way for me to say thank you, because otherwise, I don't know you sent it. All right. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are a chart-topping dialogue podcast for people with a different mind. We're sponsored by my good friends at NetSuite. Uh, check out netsuite.com slash different for the world's number one cloud ERP system. That's NetSuite by Oracle at netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And Naveen Chada and I from Mayfield have just released a couple of new episodes of Conscious VC. So check out Conscious VC uh, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Daniel, how are you, brother? I'm doing good. Doing good. Good to see you. Your beard looks more, uh, I don't know, manly than maybe. It's bigger and fuller than I remember it being. Are you, is this the COVID thickened out beard we got going? It's the my wife likes a lot of hair look. Yeah. 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 I like it. It's very manly of you. You look well, like you should be starring in, a, in an ad for some very manly product. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe like a chainsaw or something. <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny because I wouldn't touch a chainsaw with a barge pole. I, I, I'm scared <laughs> of those things. So don't let the beard fool you. It's it's all external. I mean, I went to light a fire in the forest with my five kids today. And 
you know, I, I, it started getting dark and I'm like, uh, you know, I think maybe it might be time to go home. I don't know what's in there, you know? So I wish the beard was a bit more, uh, you know, real manliness, but unfortunately well, it's just, just a bit. You look the part if you can't act the part. If you can't back it up, you look at it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I used to be scared of spiders. Oh, yeah? Like, petrified. Like, if there was a spider on the second floor of the house and, you know, I couldn't sleep on the first floor even knowing that there was a spider somewhere in the house. That's how scared I was. I had a phobia, a really mm. bad phobia. Then I got married <laughs> and and uh <laughs> and my wife's like oh my god there's a spider oh my god she's from california so she's a little bit you know um yeah dramatic so uh <laughs> so i come and i'm going oh my god there's a spider and she's like what you're supposed to you're supposed to kill you're supposed to protect me i'm like crap so i had to m mentally prepare myself and then take a very long stick with a broom at the end of it and managed to, to kill it. And then over time, I realized that if I did a little bit more, like just to get a little bit closer and a little bit closer, so eventually I was able to use a shoe. And then I was able to use a, a tissue. And now I could literally take my hand and just squash the damn thing. So you, you've progressed along this, uh, uh, this maturity curve, so to speak. I own, I own the spider fear. Yeah. You do. Yeah. This reminds me, you want to hear a funny story that's uh, along these lines? Sure. So, so my wife, Carrie, is terrified of all creepy crawly spiders, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Snakes, any of that. And so when we were first going out, um, we, were, uh, we were learning to surf. And we went down, we did a surf trip to Mexico, uh, kind of bought a surf, you know, teaching package and at a beautiful spot and this and that and the other overlooking the ocean so we get there and there's a group of us we've rented this house it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun and it was a lot of fun anyway long story longer we wake up in the morning carrie and i are early risers everyone else is asleep and so we're very quiet and i get up to make coffee as you do and then um and the bedroom door is ajar a little bit and it's not too far from from um the kitchen and i hear this noise <laughs> right and she's calling me so I, I, I come towards the bedroom and I see her standing in the middle of the bed with her hands sort of crunched up and she's like terrified like a little girl. And she says, baby, there's a lizard in the bathroom. <laughs> and so I go in and take a look and sure enough, there is a very good sized lizard in the bathroom. <laughs> And it's not happy to be there, and it, it's looking <laughs> sort of aggressive. Oh, and by the way, the other thing is, I'm in my underwear. Oh, wonderful. And so, uh, how the fuck am I going to get this lizard out of the bathroom? <laughs> so I do what any good man would do. I, I, I luckily had brought a baseball glove, because we thought we were going <laughs> to toss the ball around on the beach and stuff. So on one hand, I grab the baseball glove, and I'm like, how am I going to coax the lizard into the glove? Because I'm going <laughs> to open the window, coax it into the glove, and toss it out the window. That's sort of my strategy, right? And the lizard's moving around and, you know, I don't want it to get out and Carrie's freaked out. And so I'm trying to move fast. And so I grab the closest thing to me that I think might work, which of course is a tampon. Oh, come on. 
So here I am in my underwear in Mexico with a lizard in the bathroom, my girlfriend terrified in the middle of the bed, me in my underwear, baseball glove, tampon, and I go in there like the tough man that I am, and I coax that thing into the glove and I toss it out the window and ta-da. Sounds like a bad episode of Breaking Bad. Oh my God. <laughs> like the opening scene. Oh my goodness. That is hilarious. It would have been awesome if somehow we had gotten it on videotape. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, it all, all that happened in, I don't know, 30 seconds or something. You know, it was a, pretty quick. Things like that go viral. You should have captured that. Yeah, these were sort of the days bef- long before TikTok and, and the like. So, yeah, right. I could have been, uh, I forget, what was his name? Andre Apodaca? Or the, the guy who was in the Ocean Spray uh, TikTok. Mm. His, his last name was Apodaca. I remember that. Um, I love that guy. Yeah. Greatest have- video of 2020, right? I haven't been on TikTok. Can you believe that? But you had to see, I, I, I haven't, I have, well, I've been on it on other people's app. I, I've never put it on my phone. Right. Um, yeah. There's a whole bunch of reasons I don't want it on my phone, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but you did see that, that, that video. No, of the guy I didn't. On his, oh, Daniel. I'm it was sorry. the greatest viral video of 2020. You got to Google it. Uh, Google ocean spray skateboard video. Okay. Well, I actually cried today watching an ad. Could you believe that? That must have been very impressive marketing. What was going it on was, in the ad? I, I think it was the best ad of 2020. In fact, it was one of the best ads I've seen in a very long time. I can't remember the name of the the, the, the sponsor who actually made the ad, but I'm going to remember soon. It's going to come to me. Well, what happens in the ad? Oh, you want me to give away the ad? Okay, well, I guess I'll just well, If it tell- made you cry, you got to tell me what happened if you can't remember what the ad was for. <laughs> well- so it's some some health company in in Germany or Denmark or one of these places. Anyway, it, so the ad starts off with this old man, and he you know he's 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 really old, and it's Christmas time, and he you, you, the first scene is him looking at a picture of his grandchildren, and then he looks out his window, and he sees a Christmas tree, and suddenly his eyes light up, and he runs down to his basement. And he's moving things around like all his old sports gear. And he used to be an athlete. You see pictures and trophies of him. But he's like an old, like, you know, his body can't do what it used to. And he finds what he's looking for. It's this dumbbell. What, what is, I think it's called a kettlebell. You know, those sort of weights that you lift up with both yeah. your hands, right? So he, he finds it and, and, and he grabs hold of it. And he, with all of his might, he tries to pick it up, but he can't. He just can't pick that thing up. So, but he's so determined and you see him going to sleep and waking up early the next morning, he hits the, the, you know, sort of the alarm and he quickly gets out of his bed. He goes back down to the basement and he pulls that thing. He drags it out into the, into the garden and he's trying to lift it up. And his neighbor's looking at him like, what the heck is this old man doing? Why is he trying to lift weights at this age? You know, and she's concerned and every day he's doing this, he's lifting it a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And then his daughter comes to visit and she sees him lifting this thing. And she's like, oh my God, dad, what are you doing? And he quickly like, you know, puts a blanket over it to hide it because he, he doesn't want her to see what he's doing. Now, this is all in about two minutes of an ad. And the whole time you're just wondering what is going on? Like what is, what's happening, right? You're hooked. And then suddenly it cuts to the scene where he's at his daughter's Christmas party 
And his granddaughter, who's about, I think, four years old, something like that, is standing by the tree. And his grandfather brings the, the star that you put on top of the tree right at the top. And he gives it to his granddaughter. And he bends down and he grabs hold of her like he grabs that weight. And he lifts her up all the way so she can reach the top of the tree. It, sh- it just had me in tears. I was like, wow, so beautiful. Aww. So you know? as you were talking, I found it. And it's an wow. ad for... Doc Morris. That's right. Doc Morris. That's it. Good. What's, excuse my stupidity. What's Doc Morris? No freaking clue. <laughs> I've got no okay, idea. Let's, but, let's find but, out what Doc <laughs> Morris is. <laughs> but I think they're some sort of a health provider or some sort. But it was just genius. The storyline and the way that they hooked you. I mean, it's so, it's so great when you finally see an ad. That it's a Dutch pharmacy company. There you go. I knew it was something to do with health and, and some, you know, European thing. <laughs> Somewhere in where you say that. It's so, so dismissive of all of it. Oh, some <laughs> European health whatever thing. <laughs> Listen, I'm Swiss. I'm Swiss originally. My, my grandfather uh, escaped from Auschwitz to Switzerland. So, so I'm, I've got Swiss nationality. So I'm okay. I'm allowed to do that. Hold on a second there, handsome. Yeah. Your grandfather escaped from Auschwitz? Um, well, he was liberated. He was actually in 18 concentration camps. So there was Auschwitz and then there were 17 others over a period of about five years from the age of 13. And uh, your, your grandfather was in 18 separate concentration camps. Correct. Starting at, at what age, Daniel? 13 years old. And uh, he was actually shot and buried alive at one point. The bullet hit him in the shoulder and he pretended to be dead because he knew that if they knew he was alive, they would kill him. So he waited and he was buried amongst bodies, including his parents and his siblings, and, uh, and managed to climb out. And... Uh, there was another story that he shared with us that he was about 10 feet from the gas chambers and a Nazi soldier was standing right next to him by the line. And then the horse, the Nazi's horse, defecated on his boot. And so the Nazi soldier turned around to the person closest to him, which was my grandfather. And he said, you dirty Jew, come out here and clean this up. So my grandfather left the line, bent down and cleaned up the, the poop uh, off his boot. And then the soldier basically told him to go. So he was able to, you know, he was saved essentially from horse poop. Um, and then the other story we heard after he passed away was that he was hung twice. Well, he was almost hung. He had a noose around his neck twice. They tried to hang him twice. And the first time it was a false alarm, the uh, sirens went off and uh, he escaped into the forest. And then they found him, they hunted him down, and then they tried to hang him for the second time. And then this time it was the real deal. The sirens went off and that was um, when he was liberated. Fucking A. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah, my grandfather was an incredible person. 
uh, always had a smile on his face. What's his name, Daniel? His name was Moshe Chaim Geffen. And my, Moshe? Moshe, Moshe Chaim. Moshe. Geffen. Yeah, Moshe. He, my, my youngest, my fifth child is named after him. My youngest. Wow. Yeah. And what was incredible about him was that he stayed religious, uh, Orthodox Jewish his whole life. Prayed every single day. Was he religious before he went into the camps uh, at age 13? Yes. Yeah. He was. And so he, he used, he leaned on his faith while all of that was going on? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when, he, when he got liberated, he had nothing. And, and I mean, like, absolutely nothing. You know, today you When you people... say he got liberated, what, what does that exactly mean in his case? Uh, the Russian army came in and, uh, and liberated them. So and during the there. liberation, yes. So after the war, so when he yes, so when he left, he fled to Switzerland. Um, he was eighteen at the time, didn't have a penny to his name, didn't have any family, didn't have any f connections, didn't even speak the language, and just totally built himself up from scratch. Became a multimillionaire. Um, opened up a hotel in Lugano, which was which a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, opposite a lake facing the the swiss uh, mountains beautiful we used to go visit every every year um and the reason he opened the hotel wasn't to make money the reason he opened the hotel was because he wanted to serve people so he was always in the kitchen cooking food chopping vegetables greeting people at the door with a huge smile making sure everyone was comfortable and happy and that's how he lived his life he lived in a very small little apartment above the hotel his whole life uh didn't drive a car and gave away pretty much almost all of his money to charities. And he was a multimillionaire, you said? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Special person. Did he share with you or did you get a sense for, so from 13 to 18, last time I checked a pretty seminal time in one's life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even if all is good and you have two loving parents and you, you don't have to worry about your safety or your well-being and you're just a regular teenager trying to grow up and navigate school, that's a pretty uh, challenging time. Yeah. And so did he share with you or did he give you a sense of how do you survive through that? It's a good question. I think it's, it comes down to faith. I think when you believe in, in something more than yourself, you can get through anything. And I think that's the key. And I think it's what, what a lot of people are missing. You know, I, I, I say this very carefully because we're living in a world, especially right now, where unfortunately a lot of people are, are very, are struggling. And there's a lot of depression. There's a lot of suicide. And um, we live in a generation that's very me focused very i focused and i think that's the biggest problem is when when you were so concerned with with me and i then we just get too wrapped up in that but when you focus outwardly and you focus on something that's greater than yourself and a higher meaning a deeper purpose so then you know you're living for something else you're living for something something much greater and when you recognize that, you recognize that you have something unique that you can contribute to the world. For Moshe, 13 through 18, mm -hmm. 
did he express to you and the rest of the family that that he had a sense of purpose that was sort of calling him forward or giving him the strength or the ability in a moment to deal with um I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine yeah. anything more horrible happening to an individual. And then because it was happening to a group of people, he was not alone. He saw all these other people suffering with him. And so you have your own misery and your own pain and suffering, and uh, which boggles the mind, but you're sharing this experience with other people. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of those things, I, candidly, I don't know how that doesn't break a person. You know, the tragic thing is he didn't speak about it. There were there were only a few rare moments that that he opened up and shared, uh, and and mainly that was on Passover. Passover is a, a Jewish holiday that we celebrate once a year, and we would go and visit him. and And one of the traditions on Passover is to give over to your children and your grandchildren uh, the stories of miracles. Uh, we celebrate the miracles that happened to the Jewish people. Uh, the fact that the Jewish people are alive uh, today and that they exist is is doesn't make sense. It's statistically just an impossibility. It's a miracle. So on Passover we celebrate that, and and so those were the, the times when he would share a story here and there. But otherwise, he was totally closed up. Didn't talk about it. Didn't want to bring it up. And unfortunately, there's no book. He never wrote a book. There's no book about him. There's no podcast that he was on to share. And uh, I guess in a way, I kind of feel like my position, my career is all about giving people exposure, right? Through podcasting. My whole career is all about giving people the opportunity to promote and share their stories and get themselves out there on the biggest podcast. And ironically, I feel like I'm doing something that my grandfather didn't do, that he couldn't do. And so in a very real way, you feel purpose around what you're doing in the podcast uh, domain Mm -hmm. as a reflection of the fact that uh, Moshe did not have an opportunity or did not take an opportunity or what have you yeah. to broadly share his story. Well, podcasts weren't even around when he was, when he was around. So, well, yeah, of course, yeah, you know. like you say, he yeah. could have, you know, I probably talk about it too much, but I don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> I read a man's search for meeting when I was a teenager, probably 13, 14 in there. You know, yeah. I was a real sort of searching kind of kid and, so I did a lot of I did a lot of reading and uh, listened to a lot of tapes and ended up doing a lot of courses. Blah blah. blah. Anyway, that book's one of the five most important books to me. Yeah, you know, it's written in a way that my thirteen or fourteen year old self could find some way to relate as best you know a thirteen fourteen year old in Montreal, Canada could relate to that situation. But and so those stories really matter. And I forget the name of the foundation now, but um, Spielberg created a foundation where he, do you know about this? What he did or what he's doing where he's recording all of the testimony of Holocaust survivors and putting it in a museum. That's incredible. Yeah. He had a realization that as Holocaust survivors were dying off, just, you know, age and and so forth, that um, the world might forget. And so he made an effort to try and get 
I forget exactly how many, but uh, you know, anyone essentially you could um, get to who was willing to share the story and document all of it. And if I'm not mistaken, it's in a museum. I, I want to say it's in LA. Hold on. Maybe I could find it while we're yeah, talking. It could, but could be it's in LA. I think I remember. I did go to his mother's cafe. Steven Spielberg's mother had a cafe. And uh, at, I think it was at 12 o'clock sharp, or maybe it was one o'clock. Somebody in the cafe would ring a bell and they would bring a tall glass of wine and put it on the counter and she would walk up to it and she was just the right height to be able to sip from the glass. And then it was like some tradition that she did. She was very, very funny, very funny, very cute, um, very proud of her son. Uh, it was a very interesting experience to be there. Yeah. So here it is. It's at uh, USC. Oh. It's called the Shoah Foundation, spelled S-H-O-A-H. And they describe it as the Institute for Visual History and Education. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And then it says here, our mission is to develop empathy, understanding, and respect through testimony. Through our research and educational programs, the Institute harnesses the power of its archive of personal testimonies from witnesses to genocide in order to do our part to build a better world. There you go. There you go. Well, God bless uh, Moshe. Thank you. Oh, man. And without his courage and commitment, we wouldn't have you. Yeah, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. And so, Daniel... Um, I grew up in a family with a, a grandfather who served in World War II mm -hmm. um, from Scotland. And as a little boy, his stories of the war fascinated me. I, I, I hung on every word and I respected him and admired him and, and became fascinated with World War II in, in great, great part because of him. Even as a young boy, five, six, seven, eight years old. So I, I have an experience of growing up in a family with a grandfather who was in World War II. What I'm curious is, what's it like growing up in a family with Moshe as the grandfather with that experience? How, how does that inform the family, his experience and the way he dealt with his life as a result and so forth? Um, yeah, so obviously there's a lot of trauma. And, uh, because of that, my, so he was my father's father. So my father, um, grew up with a father that really wasn't emotionally there as a father should be or could be. And, and for very good reason. And so because of that, I grew up with a father who also didn't know how to, to be emotionally there as a father. Now, more recently, as I've grown as a person, I've built up the courage to build a relationship with my father because he couldn't. So, so what does that mean? Tell me, please tell me. The way that I, that I see it is there are people who are physically handicapped, right? So if you grow up with a father that, that unfortunately, you know, isn't able to walk and he's confined to a wheelchair, you wouldn't blame him for not coming out and playing some soccer with you, right? Or going for a run. He's disabled. It's not his fault. His legs don't work. I look at my father as someone who was emotionally disabled. And so rather than blame him for not 
being the father that I that I wanted. I I look at him as someone that was in an emotional wheelchair. He can't be blamed for that. And so what I what I did instead was I created a relationship with him. Even though at first it was uncomfortable, but I realized if if you want something, you have to go and get it yourself. Sometimes people just aren't able to be there for you. So, you know, you've got to be there for them. Now, this is interesting on so many levels. Uh, the first level that sort of the first thing that pops to my mind is I think it's it would be easy for for people in a situation like this to say, well, you, I'm the child. He's mm-hmm. the parent. Mm-hmm. And he should be the one. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what was it in you that said, I- I'm going to extend the olive branch. I'm going to figure out a way to get to him. Even if he can't or won't with me, I'm going to find a way to him. What, what made you decide that's what you were going to go do, Daniel? You know, the key word that you said there was should. He should be the one. And the problem is, is that when we take on that attitude of this should be like this and this should be like that and he should do this and she should do that, you're just not going to get anywhere. You're just going to fall victim and you're just going to, you know, be in a self-made prison. And if you like it, if you like being in that prison, great. But if you don't, then get the hell out of there. Don't lock yourself in a should prison. It doesn't work. It will kill your marriage. It will kill your relationship with your kids. It will kill your relationships in business. Don't do it. It's amazing you say that because one of the things I've always thought, and it's, it can be so hard, particularly in situations like this or in moments of crisis, when we are so invested in it, it being different than it is, when the, when the truth about what's so is, when the truth about what's happening or reality or however you want to describe it, is so not so far from what we wish it would be, it can be very hard for many of us to deal with the way it is. And the fascinating thing about what you're saying, at least on one dimension, is you decided to have a profound relationship with the way it was, the truth about it. And you asked yourself a question. I'm, 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 I pose this as a question. Well, if I want my relationship with my father to be different, you know, it's what Dr. Seuss taught us. If it's up to be, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. <laughs> yeah. I love Dr. Seuss. Yeah. I have a, a, a mentor, a rabbi, who many times has said to me, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? You can't always have both. Sometimes you can, but a lot of times you can't, you cannot have both. So what do you want? You, you get to choose. And my goodness, my marriage totally transformed. We just celebrated our, our 14th anniversary um, two days ago, uh, four days ago now. And I could tell you the difference between my marriages was, was uh, my marriage was, was night and day when I, when I started to choose to be happy instead of right. That's, that's, I love it. I'm curious in that domain how comfortable you and your wife are. Remind me what her name is, Daniel. Lauren. Lauren? Yeah. When you and Lauren have a disagreement, do you say to each other, I'm sorry, or I was wrong? 
Yeah, so it used to be she was always the one that would have to say I'm sorry. Because I was my ego was so big and I just put up this wall, you know, wall that you need to you need to come to me and apologize. I just wasn't I wasn't willing to go there. I wasn't willing to to lower my ego and and humble myself to say I was wrong or I'm sorry. And being the incredible woman that she is, she put love before ego always. And so she would be the one to do that. But it, it wasn't healthy because in a way she was enabling me to just, you know, keep up a bad behavior. But thankfully, I I got to a place through a lot of work where I became the one very quickly to own up and say, this is stupid. That's what is what 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 is it worth? You know, we love each other. Like, well, nothing is more important than our relationship. Hmm. And uh, and I and I've been able to do that, thankfully. And that's changed. That changes our whole relationship. How so? Well, there's no more of this pettiness and silent treatments and or stonewalling and all this just immature behavior. I just got rid of that little baby boy that needs to be, you know, right all the time and needs all the attention. And don't get me wrong, I'm still human. I still want attention. I still enjoy a compliment. <laughs> I'm I'm still a human being. But when that little child in you controls you, then your life is, it just sucks. Because nobody wants to have a relationship with a little child that constantly needs attention and, and, and needs to be, you know, right all the time. It just doesn't work. It's irritating and exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I have five of them. And it isn't <laughs> endearing. <laughs> no, it's not cute anymore when you're 36 or whatever it is, right? At some point in life, you know, you, you, it, it's, not, it's not cute. There's also an interesting um, power in surrender. We see this all the time. Mm -hmm. Somebody says or does something. It's clearly stupid. It's a stupid position they've taken. They know if they have an IQ, they know it's stupid. We know it's stupid. Maybe it came out wrong. Whatever it is, right? And we make it so much more stupid when we double down on the stupid as opposed to just surrender it. Yeah. You know, a couple mornings ago, I woke up before my wife, Carrie, and I can't remember, I, I can't remember what the thing was, but she woke up, sort of said good morning, and there was something on my mind, I couldn't find, whatever it was. And so I sort of barked something at her, <laughs> not intentionally, it was just, I, I, maybe it'll come to me, but this, I, there was something, and I kind of went right at her for it. And she answered me, and it resolved whatever the question was I was dealing with in my head. But then after that happened, I realized, I was a complete asshole with how I said that. I, I barely said good morning. I, I didn't give her a kiss. I didn't ask her if I could make her some tea. I, I didn't ask her how she slept. I, I, I was not a human being relating to the most important person in my life. I was irritated with whatever the thing was, and I thought she could help resolve it, and I just sort of went at it. Mm. And so I said to her, hey, I, you know, that came out all wrong. I, I, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. How did you sleep last night? 
How are you feeling? Can I make you some tea? You know, let's go back to being a human being. And the thing that's interesting about that, as opposed to sort of digging yourself into some stupid righteous hole for no real reason, right? Just to justify some idiot behavior. It's just nice to just surrender it and go, ah, that was dumb. Admit it, get on with it. And the whole thing's over in, you know, a minute or two, as opposed to now we got like a turd in the punch bowl for the whole day in our relationship. Yeah. And that's a real man, by the way. I think that going back to sort of the beginning of this episode, when you uh, complimented me on my beard, you said it was very manly. It's interesting that you think about what is a man? It's a guy with a beard and a chainsaw and, you know, and that's unfortunate because I feel like the youth of our generation are confused. They're confused. They don't know what it means to be a man. And when you say our generation, you mean millennials? Yeah. I'm what do you mean? Yeah, I'm talking, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, teens, teenagers, boys. So Gen, Gen Z through till millennials? I don't care what you call them. Yeah. I mean, I hate when... Younger, younger men. Young, younger generation, you know, people, you know, un, I guess <laughs> the truth is, is you have 60 year old men that don't know what a man is either. They're also acting like little baby, little, little, little babies. And so what's your definition of a man? A real man is, is, has the ability to drop the ego, to, to let go, to surrender. That's real power. That is real power. You know, I once said to one of my mentors, I said to him, this person keeps pressing my buttons. He keeps pushing my buttons. And he said the most incredible thing. I never, I never forgot it. He said, Daniel, why do you have buttons to push in the first place? Get rid of your buttons and he's got nothing to push. Do you know what power that is? <laughs> That's real power. When your opponent cannot touch you, you're untouchable. By the way, this goes back to Viktor Frankl. They couldn't touch him. He was untouchable. They couldn't get into his head. They could beat him. They could starve him. I believe that's the same thing what happened with my grandfather. They beat him. They shot him. They tried to hang him. They killed everyone around him. They did everything they could, but they couldn't touch his belief. They couldn't touch that. That's not touchable. That's real power. When a person has a deep sense of purpose and a deep sense of belief, they're, they're unstoppable. Hmm. That, that is real strength. And have you tried to cultivate that in your life? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always working on myself and trying to improve in, in every aspect. And, you know, at, at the beginning, it used to backfire because I was too hard on myself. I'm, I'm a perfectionist by nature. I'm always trying to perfect everything and, and trying to be the best. And my therapist, you know, taught me over the years, she kept saying it over and over. She said, Daniel, just 2%, just 2% better. That's all you need. You just need to be 2%. You just need to work on that 2%. You could scream, but shut your mouth for 10 seconds before you do. That's power. You build that muscle and then 10, 10 seconds becomes 20 seconds and 20 seconds becomes, becomes 30 seconds and that becomes a minute and then you don't scream. 
So the 2% becomes 3%, 4 5%, 10%. You get better and better and better. But you, you can only focus on that 2%. That's the key. Well, the, uh, the other thing that's sort of interesting to me, remember jukeboxes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always loved the jukebox. I always loved to go to those diners where they had the little the little jukebox at the at the at the booth. Mm-hmm. You know, in each booth. I always I always loved that. And, you know, if you drop the quarter in or whatever it is today, uh, and you press A seven, <laughs> it plays the Rolling Stones Jumpin' Jack Flash. And every yeah. time you drop the quarter and play A seven, it plays Jumpin' Jack Flash. And there's some power when we realize that a human being is not a jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> right. The other question I want to ask you as it relates to sort of, if I could, your identity and maybe even somewhat the identity of your family in the context of Moisha, I feel an obligation, not in a heavy way, maybe at points in the past, certainly not today, but an obligation to sort of invest my life, spend my life, use my life well because of the sacrifices of my grandparents and my parents, but especially my my grandparents as, you know, World War II survivors and as people who left the home country, in my case, to come to Canada to pursue a better life because there were no jobs after the war. And, And so I feel like they did so much. They took so much personal risk. They they had to suffer for um, no fault of their own. And I'll never forget as a young boy, Daniel, asking my grandfather, his name was Jack. Uh, and a lot of people called him Jackie, as in Jackie Stewart. Um, <laughs> but I remember being a very young boy, um, five, eight, somewhere in there, why he fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. And him saying, so that you would have a better life. And so all that said, how much does sort of the context of your grandfather's life inform you and your family today? It's a great question. Um, I think it goes even further back. Right. So there's my grandfather, but then there's my great grandfather, my great, 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 great grandfathers. My, um, I, I didn't know them, but they made sacrifices too. Right. They, they all made sacrifices. And, uh, ultimately, I feel like when a person feels lost and we all get there, we all sort of, lose our way we kind of get to a place in our life where we don't know where we're going and why we're doing what we're doing and what the hell's the point of all this anyway you ever have that chris i've had it it's a place so, i know well daniel and a place i've spent a lot of time recently <laughs> you know what keeps a tree firmly in the ground its roots and the deeper the roots, the more firm it is. And you've got to go back to your roots. Mm. You've got to know what your roots are. And everyone has roots. Everyone has history. And it's, it, it's amazing how few people today know who their ancestors were. Forget about their grandparents. Okay, their grandparents, even that, 
most people don't even know their grandparents anymore. Forget about their great-grandparents. And then their great-great-grandparents, no. But the further you go back, the deeper your roots are, and the more you'll start to see more meaning in your life. By chance, Daniel, uh, do you know who Bruce Feiler, the author, is? No. So he's written seven or eight uh, New York Times bestsellers, and uh, we had him on a, a while ago. His new book is called Life is in the Transitions. And I think it's one of the most important books written in a very long time. Um, he has this incredible insight, which he then goes and does primary research in, which is he sort of realizes, you know, life is not linear. It's certainly not up and to the right. Um, and it feels like a disproportionate amount of time in our adult life is spent moving from one place to another place. In some cases for positive reasons. You know, you and Lauren decide to get married. Well, that's a positive transition, right? A big change. You decide to start your podcast business as an entrepreneur. That's a big, positive, proactive transition, life change. But then, of course, there are many that just happen to us. We lose a loved one. We have some kind of a health problem emerge, problem in our business, whatever it is. And so he goes and does research on these major transitions. He calls them life quakes and how people deal with them. In there he discovers that the people who survive and thrive through these life quakes, one of the attributes they often have is what you're describing as roots. The more they know about their family, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, et cetera, the better. And then he goes on one step further. If they are aware of and or have a relationship with a family member, an aunt or an uncle, a grandparent, whatever the case may be, who went through a major transition, who had a serious difficulty and, and made it through and how they dealt with it, that further enhances one's ability down the line. And so what I'm saying to you is this extraordinary author, Bruce Feiler, has discovered that what you say uh, he discovered it in data and in research for this wonderful book. Wow, I love that. I got to check it out. Uh, well, just one fine point on um, his book, "Life in the Transition." Life is in the transitions. Uh, my wife Carrie, I think, might have listened to three episodes of my podcast ever, <laughs> <laughs> and she listened to that one. I, to I told her about it, and she decided to listen. And then she decided to read the book. And then she decided that we were going to buy, I, I forget how many it was, but it might have been 25 copies or whatever. We, we wow. gave it away as presents um, this Christmas and Hanukkah season uh, to, our, uh, to our family and friends. So um, that's how much uh, power uh, Carrie and I have felt in 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 this this work of Bruce's and it it completely validates what you're saying that as kids we need a deep sense of our history and those stories make a difference mm -hmm. and i guess that leads me to a question with maybe an obvious answer but i want to ask it anyway which is how much strength do you personally draw from Moshe oh tremendous amount you know i've I've interviewed billionaires, 
I've interviewed the smartest man alive. I've interviewed the leading hostage negotiator for the FBI, the US memory champion, and, uh, over 150 incredible guests on my on my own podcast. And whenever someone asks me who is the most inspiring person to you, I mean, they're all inspiring the people I've interviewed, but none of them are as inspiring as my own my own grandfather. So I I, I draw a tremendous amount of of strength from him. In fact, when I pray uh, every morning, um, so I put on what's called tefillin, which is uh, phylacteries, I guess, and I have a picture of my grandfather in front of me when I'm praying. So he's in my there's a I guess it's a it's a sort of a see-through bag that I have my tefillin inside of. And when I open up the bag and I take out my tefillin, my grand picture of my grandfather is there. So I have him in front of me when I'm when I'm praying. But I also dedicate my first two and a half hours of my day to studying the ancient texts of my people every single day. I have a learning a study partner who I learn Talmud with. So we learn about an hour and a half of Talmud, ancient Jewish wisdom. And, uh, and then we spend another hour learning other texts, other Jewish uh, texts, wisdom. So uh, I'm investing in, in, in myself. I'm investing in, in my future by studying my past. Have you leaned on it more in the recent past with, I mean, all of us, the entire world is going through an extraordinary uh, moment in time. And so have you uh, leaned on it more lately or how has it been over the last year or so? Well, what's what's great is that I've been doing it for, for many years now. It's a practice I've been doing for quite a few years. So it, it wasn't something that I took up when the pandemic hit. But I will say this, I went through the, I've been through this pandemic with a much easier time because of it. I've stayed a lot stronger. Hmm. My family has been very strong. My marriage has stayed strong. And, and that's a huge testament to, to the work that we've done. Because a lot of marriages were not healthy and the pandemic just opened up the, the sort of, you know, the blinds were up and you could see everything you're forced to spend time with your spouse. <laughs> and now let's see how that lasts. You know, before the pandemic, you could just run off to your office. She can run off to her, whatever, you know, you can avoid conflict, but when you're forced to be together, whether it's your, you and your spouse or whether it's you and your children or you and whoever it is that you're living with, you're now forced to, to be together. And, and then that's when all the issues arise, all the things that you sort of were escaping from, there's no escape anymore. The divorce rate went up, not because the pandemic did something different to the relationship. The pandemic just revealed what was really happening all along in the relationship. It was a, it was just bound to happen. It just, this was the, the rude awakening, if you will. There's this epidemic now of despair is what people are calling it. 
And I thought I read, so I, I might be wrong. I didn't find it quickly and I didn't want to fuck around too much as you were talking, but that something like 25% of people have had serious thoughts of suicide mm-hmm. since the pandemic broke out. And, and I, like you, and I'm sure many of us, of course, have read things about the tension it's putting on marriages, the tension it's putting on relationships amongst siblings, amongst parents and siblings, like children and siblings and all of that. And, and, and for damn good reason, I mean, people are dying. It's, you know, you sort of start there, right? And, yeah. and, and, and you see the numbers. And of course, we all know they're not numbers. And anybody who's experienced a loss in their life understands what that means when there's an empty chair. And that, that's pain and suffering that never goes away. Mm-hmm. Make it a little easier over time to deal with. But you're a different person when you lose somebody you love, period, end of discussion. Changes your life forever. And so it's interesting to hear you say this because our family has been through tremendous pain and suffering over the last year and a half or so, independent of COVID and all that other, you know, the economy and all that. And I had a conversation with my, with my mom, I don't know, maybe about a year or so ago, eight months ago about this. And we hadn't talked about faith for a very, very long time. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I'm not a Catholic today. I'm not sure I'm a Christian, I, and I, but I absolutely do believe in God. And so I consider myself a faith-oriented uh, person, if not a religious person, if you know what I mean. And I have friends of virtually every faith you can imagine, and I enjoy learning and reading about them and, and discussing it. Anyway, long story longer, <laughs> I explained to my mom that the only way we've been able to deal with the losses that we've suffered is through friends, family, and faith. And I just don't know how you walk through fire. I mean, I'll just put it bluntly. I don't know how you walk through fire without God. Whatever your definition of God is. You know what God is? Tell me. It's purpose. It's meaning. When... when you say God, I say God, you know, I might be referring to a God that was described to me by my parents or my school or whatever it is, my religion. When you say God, or when you hear the word God, you just, you translate it in however it is that it was described to you. But ultimately, we're all talking about the same thing. We're talking about the fact that there is a creator and what that means is that we were created and we were created with a purpose. We're not here randomly. We're not just some random mistake that happened. And that's the difference. That is the difference. When a person has faith, it just means that they believe in in a higher purpose. And when you believe in a higher purpose, you can get through anything because, because now everything has meaning. If something loses meaning, it's over. When, When you, when you don't have any reason to fight anymore, you're finished. It's, it's game. It's game over. It's game over. And by the way, that's why a lot of people who retire and they end up in a home, in an elderly home, the, the death rate is so high 
it's so weird how many people die within six months of retiring. It's, it's yeah. I don't have data on it, but you hear about it. And I don't know, but it makes I don't sense know what the data is, but it's yeah, it makes sense. Anyway, there's this great Churchill quote I found recently and I'll paraphrase it cause I don't have it right in front of me, but he says, don't give up on something that you can't stop thinking about every day. And to me, that ties to purpose, right? Yeah. I know that I'm doing the right things with my life because they're the things that, and I know this sounds like a bullshit word to a lot of people, and it might sound like I've lived on the West Coast long, too long, but like <laughs> things that you're called to, mm-hmm. right? I mean, marketing and category design and entrepreneurial stuff and technology, all these things that I've spent my professional life on they're in my head all the time. I can't, I don't turn them on. It's I don't sit there and think about like, Oh, now I'm going to sit here and think, no. And when I hear somebody say something that I think is completely asinine about marketing, I'm like, are you fucking stop spreading that shit? Right. And I, you just, I just, it's not a choice I make. It's something that, that has me. I don't have it. If uh, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And it's a curse. But of course, it's the blessing of your life to have a purpose, even if that purpose torments you sometimes. (laughs) It is. It's a blessing and a curse. It's a double-edged sword. When, When Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there were, it says, the mystics say that there were two angels that stood at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, wielding swords that would... Uh, and there were swords made of light that would um, uh, circulate. So it would be like um, they would oscillate. And when you looked at it, you didn't know which direction to go. In other words, the biggest enemy we have, the one thing that's holding us back from going back to Gun Eden, to going to the Garden of Eden, is doubt. It's confusion. That is the only evil that exists in the world. It's uncertainty, it's doubt, it's the unknown. The reason why people, when they hear the words calling, and you were kind of a little uneasy to say it, because you knew that there would be people who would judge you for it, but you should never feel uneasy because the reason why they feel uneasy about it is because they have doubt. There's a doubt about what's real, what isn't real. But, you know, ultimately, going back to what I said before about having purpose, if you have purpose, if you have meaning, if you, if you study life, what could be, first of all, what could be more important than studying the meaning of life. We're not here for very long. And if everything we do is and just... it's a hell of a Monty Python movie, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the life of Brian. Yeah. While we're at it. <laughs> yeah. But it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's it, once, once everything has a meaning and a purpose to it, it changes everything. Everything. Yeah. And you hear a lot about like, well, how do I find my purpose? Mm-hmm. Right. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of online courses for people who don't feel like they have a quote unquote purpose. 
and think they want to get one. Yeah. And so if I'm somebody who who feels like I want one, but I can't seem to find one, what <laughs> what advice would you give me? There was once a guy who was searching for something on the floor. It was a very dark night. And uh, this person noticed this guy, you know, desperately trying to search for something. And he was, he was underneath this lamp. There was a street lamp. And so he joins the guy and starts looking around as well. You know, he's, you know I want to help this guy find whatever he's looking for. It seems to be he's lost something very valuable. Well, after a couple of minutes of looking and they can't, there's nothing here. He turns around to the guy and said, you know, what, what have you lost? And he said, I've lost a, a very precious ring that was given to me by my grandfather. And he said, well, are you sure that you dropped it here? He said, no. In fact, I'm sure I haven't. I, I dropped it somewhere down there. He said, well, why on earth are you looking here? He said, because this is where the light is. Yes. <laughs> so we do a lot of that. So people are searching, but, they, you know, <laughs> they're going and searching. Have you ever read The Alchemist? No, I have not. That's your next book. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So it's actually interesting because The Alchemist, I don't know exactly when it was written, but there are, again, ancient Jewish texts that literally, from from what it seems, uh, the person who wrote The Alchemist must have studied those ancient Jewish texts because it's almost uh, <laughs> uh, the exact same story. It's a brilliant story, mm. but it's essentially a story about uh, somebody who's who's searching for the, the treasure. He has a dream, and in his dream, that there's there's this bridge, and underneath this bridge, uh, there's this there's this treasure of gold, and he goes on this whole long journey, and he, you know it's an incredible story, very very well written. <sighs> I, I don't know if I could give you the ending because it's it's, uh, it's something I would like you to read, so. Yeah, yeah, don't give me the ending. And I I'm will. just checking. It's written by a guy named Paolo. Paolo, yes. Colojo? Colo I'm probably saying that's that wrong. Why, that's why I didn't, I didn't mention the author's name, because yeah. I, I wouldn't do it justice. Well, as a, as a <laughs> dyslexic, I get, I mean, yeah. I, I, but I've just decided I'll just, it's C-O-E-L-H-O, Colojo, Colojo. Yeah. And it came out uh, in April of 93, The Alchemist. Yeah. Yeah, so to the ancient Jewish text. And it's got 42,000 ratings on Amazon.com. Actually, well, 43,000, almost 43,000. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. It's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. The name rings a bell, but I don't know why it rings a bell. So, you know. So here's what I'll do. I'll let you read it. And then uh, if you ever have me back We can have on, a conversation about it. We can talk about it. I do want to circle back to where we just were. The other interesting thing I'd like to sort of bounce off you when people say, well, I don't know what I what my purpose is, or I don't know the other, you know, I don't know what I want in life. Mm -hmm. As a young man, Daniel, I said similar things. Yeah. And I can't, I wish I could remember who said it or where I read it or somebody taught it to me. It wasn't an original thought, but I can't remember from where it, from whence it came, but somehow somebody taught me the following. If you know that you don't want something. So let's say your personal life, you're trying to figure out a career. You say, okay, well, why not be a doctor? I don't want to be a doctor. 
Okay, why not be an entrepreneur? I don't want to be an entrepreneur, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you know what you don't want, you must know what you want. Because the only way you can know that you don't want it is you're comparing it to something in your head. You're using some criteria to say, I don't want to be this, or I don't want to do that. And you say, okay, well, what do you want to be, or what do you want to do? And you say, well, I don't know. Well, you can't know that you don't want to unless you know what you want. Now, it might not be clear to you. Your job now is to make it clear. But if you know you don't want something, you're comparing that something that you don't want to a criteria, to a context, to an idea. And so your job now is to discover that because in point of fact, you actually do and you need to stop bullshitting yourself. You know what you want. It's sitting right in front of your face because you're comparing it to something. <laughs> you follow me? Am I making any sense? Absolutely. Or, or, or you're just following everyone else and, and you're too afraid of what people are going to think of you. That's, that's another thing that I struggled with for many years was I was so afraid of what people thought about me. And, uh, you know, part of studying my, my ancient history I started to learn from my ancestors. I started to learn from the greats. So for example, Abraham, who I think most people are familiar with, Abraham had an, a very interesting ability to not care about what anyone thinks and at the same time care tremendously about the people themselves. So Abraham was the first person to believe in one God. Until Abraham, everyone believed that there were multiple gods. And Abraham came along and, and believed only in, in one God. And the whole world was against him. If you, if you study the story of Abraham, you'll see he was thrown into a fire. Crazy, crazy stuff. And the whole world was against him. But he was the most giving person. He would invite everyone to his tent as guests. He would always be looking for guests to serve. He, he, he personified a giver. He personified a person who, who, who had love and kindness. And that is a huge distinction. To be able to care about people but not care about what they think about you. You care about the person. You don't care about what their opinion or what they think about you is because that's irrelevant. Yes. It's, it's, if you can get rid of those shackles, the, uh, I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks of me shackles. Yes. Boy, that's freedom. That's the greatest weight loss in the history of weight loss right there. <laughs> It's freedom. It's, it's that people are always chasing freedom. There's, that's freedom. Well, and here's the crazy thing about that. This was the aha that helped me with that. And of course, sometimes I can get caught up in, in it as well. It's a natural human place to go to, of course. However, once you realize you can't do shit <laughs> to change the way people think. You, you can work for a decade to try to get a certain person or a certain group of people to think about you in some particular way. You have, we have no control over how the fuck people think of us. We don't. We really don't. So we might, you might as well be yourself because 
and then if people actually do like you, then they like you for who you're being as opposed to you trying to be who you think you should be to get them to like you when in point of fact that doesn't fucking work. So you might as well be yourself and let the chips fall with him. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's funny because when, when a person walks into a room, they are thinking about how do I look? How do I sound when I'm talking to this person? What do they think of me? Do they like me? Do they like what I'm wearing? And what they don't realize is that everyone else in the room is thinking the same darn thing. They're thinking the same thing. What does he think or what does she think about me? What does he or she think about what I'm wearing? How do I sound? And so everyone's kind of just doing the same thing. But if you flip it and you say, well, hold on. And this is all about having self-awareness. Self-awareness is one of the keys to freedom. If you can be aware of the fact that if everyone in the room is thinking about themselves and how they look and how they sound, in other words, what everyone's really saying is, I deeply want people to love and appreciate me. That's really what we're all saying. We're all saying the same. We're all saying, I just want to be loved and appreciated. Well, if you know that, and then you pay attention to that and you give people real compliments and you listen to them and you give them that attention and that love, then you become the most attractive person in the room. Well, yes. And for me beyond that, I'm not that interested in myself. You know, I, I, the people I respect and admire have sort of gotten over themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in you. Yeah. Right. And so there's something, at least for me, Daniel, the power and value of being curious about things that interest you. And for me, one of the things I find most interesting is other people, particularly other people who've, you know, followed their different people who have embraced failure and losing uh, to catapult themselves forward you know, there are themes of people that I find interesting, obviously. I care more about that. You know, so, so I guess my point is, I don't know. And I know in the social media world where a lot of people, you know, the thing they want is to be famous. They want the world to fucking look at them, right? That's <laughs> why I, the, I think the Kardashians are a, are a, you know, a bad infection on humanity, and Gary V and all these sort of look at me, look at me, influencer asshole types. And it's just, it's really sad, I think. And so I think other people are way more interesting. Having a curious mind, it's how we learn. Yeah. It, it don't, lo don't, don't use, lose the curiosity of life. Yeah, I look at my little, my youngest is now two. And he, he's just so adventurous and so curious and everything is a fascination. Yes. That's another thing that my 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 mentor told told taught me was turn every frustration into a fascination. When something mm. is frustrating, just just be fascinated by it. Just observe, just look at it, and and just be, become fascinated with it. Why the fuck is this driving me nuts? That's interesting, <laughs> now, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It is. I love that idea of turning frustration into fascination. I don't think I've heard that before, Daniel. That's a fucking gem right there. <laughs> yeah. Why is this thing making me crazy? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> Daniel, you and I could talk forever, clearly. And I'm I'm not I haven't even been drinking during this conversation. <laughs> if I was if I was drinking, um 
Is there anything else that you would like to touch on? Um, there's there's one interesting image that just came to my mind. It's it's an analogy. I, I love analogies. I don't know why it came to me, but if it came to me, then it's uh, <laughs> meant to be shared, right? So people have different definitions of heaven and hell, right? Everyone has their own sort of idea of what heaven and hell is. Uh, some people don't believe in heaven and hell. But uh, the definition I heard, which is the best definition I've I've ever heard, is that really heaven and hell is the same place. And what it is, is that you go up at the end of your life and you find yourself sitting at this banquet hall and there's this very long, infinitely long table and everyone is sitting at the table, but there's two rows and everyone's sitting opposite somebody else. And on the table is the most incredible, delicious food you've ever had in your life. It's that your favorite, favorite food. And it's just, and you can eat as much as you want and you'll never get full. It's just every bite is infinitely more tasty. It's incredible. But here's the thing. In front of you, you have a fork. But strangely enough, the fork is really long. And try as you might, you cannot feed yourself with the fork. It's just too long. So the people in this world that were selfish and self-centered will never get it. For eternity, they will starve and they will try to figure out how to feed themselves, but never will. But the people who give, people who are givers and who, who are focused on other people will figure it out very fast. This fork isn't for me. It's for the person opposite me. It's for me to feed them. And if you figure it out, guess what? The person opposite you figures it out straight away and you feed each other. And I'll leave you with that. Daniel, you're awesome. <laughs> Thank you. You're awesome. You really are. So fun. I'm so stoked we had this conversation. I don't know what conversation I was expecting. It wasn't this one. <laughs> I wasn't but, expecting uh, it either. <laughs> so I'm glad. But... Uh, <laughs> Maybe one day we'll come. You'll come back and we'll talk about podcasting. Yeah, but um, I was going to say on your other show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, thank you, thank you. You're an incredible entrepreneur, and uh, I deeply appreciate this conversation, man. Thank you, thank you for giving me the platform to share. I appreciate it. That is absolutely my pleasure. Stay legendary, brother, and uh, I'll look, we'll look forward to chatting again soon. Bye for now. All right. Well, there he is, Daniel Geffen, and you can find him on the internet at geffenmediagroup.com. That's geffenmediagroup.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, there is a share button on you, more likely a share button on the podcast app you're listening to. And why not share this with a couple thousand of your closest friends right now? We deeply, deeply appreciate it. And make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to get our next episode with John Spagnola. He's the founder of a company called You Blend It, and they are designing a new category of custom spirits. Two things we love, spirits and customization. <laughs> now is the time to invest in creating a legendary foundation for your business. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in, the world's number one cloud business system. 
NetSuite is a legendary accounting system and so much more, empowering you to manage every penny with precision, staying on top of your sales, order, inventory, uh, supply chain, and so much more. Businesses running NetSuite report cost savings of 50% or more over the cost of running legacy old on-premise systems. NetSuite eliminates costly upgrades, expensive infrastructure, and onerous maintenance. And with NetSuite, you'll get built-in dashboards that provide reporting on everything you need on every strategic component of your business. And you know, I gotta tell you, my first business failed. And it failed in part because we did not invest in a legendary platform. So please don't make the same mistake I made and visit netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And now more than ever, data is a strategic asset. And the companies that are faring the best during this um, tragedy that we're all dealing with are digital companies. And Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Splunk is a scalable and reliable data platform for investigating, monitoring, analyzing, and most importantly, acting on your data. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. My friends at spiro.ai are the leaders in proactive relationship management. They help you go beyond CRM to close more business, harnessing the power of machine learning and AI. Check out spiro.ai. And my friends at bottleneck.online are the leading distant assistant company. And um, they will get you a legendary assistant who's never near you and never will be near you. (laughs) Check out bottleneck.online today. All right. We would like to thank our guest today, Daniel Geffen. Again, you can find him on the internet at geffenmediagroup.com. OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check him out. Another nonprofit I'm super proud to be associated with, check out dropincoalition.org. It's a field trip service here in Santa Cruz, California, to teach people from underserved communities the power of surfing and the power of science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Check out dropincoalition.org today. Dig into your wallet and make a difference if you can. All right, this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this podcast is clearly created in a studio that does contain nuts. And the creators of this podcast were probably consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by G.M. Simon. Remember to listen to KD Lang. Tom Waits was right. Read our new newsletter, Category Pirates, blowing your mind once a week at Lockhead.com. That's Category Pirates at Lockhead.com. Spread podcasts, not viruses. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.